Acts chapter 21, Paul is in the final stages of his third and longest missionary journey. All told, he's probably been gone nearly a decade uh, from the city of Antioch where he always started out. Um, he's traveled all over the Mediterranean world as far uh, uh, west as Greece. Eventually, on his last journey, he'll get to Italy and Rome. Uh, he's been all over the region today that we call Turkey um, and so forth. He spent uh, nearly two years in Corinth. He spent three years in Ephesus. Then he backtracked to all of those places and backtracked yet again. And he is on his way to Jerusalem. He's got a burden. I know I, I, I told you to go to Acts 21, but can you go with me to verse 22 of chapter 20? One more time. Paul says, and now behold, I go bound in the spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. He was bound in the spirit. Paul had a great burden that he never ever went into detail about, but he, he was compelled to go to the city of Jerusalem. That is where uh, the remaining apostles were still living. Uh, the church at Jerusalem that we read about in, in the early chapters of the book of Acts has largely been scattered, but there's still a core of people there. Uh, they are living in great persecution. They are living in great poverty. Paul has a burden for them. He sees Jerusalem and that church there as the one that started it all. Um, he would later write to the people at Corinth as concerning the offerings that were being collected uh, for the saints there. He said, look, uh, we are partakers of their spiritual things. Uh, we are blessed today because these people received the gospel and then they took that gospel everywhere. And so Paul had a burden. Um, Paul, throughout the churches in our region, if we can get our map up here, um, thank you. Uh, Paul was over here in Greece. There is Corinth. Uh, up here is Philippi, Thessalonia, uh, Thessalonica, and so forth. In all of these churches, he was taking up an offering for the saints at Jerusalem. Uh, many scholars believe that Paul, part of Paul's burden to go back to Jerusalem was not just his affinity for the place where, where it all started, but it was also uh, a sense of responsibility. There was an offering. We have no idea how much money had been collected from these churches, but Paul wanted to make sure that that money got there intact, safe and sound, that, that, that nothing happened to it, and he, he felt a sense of responsibility. So he's bound in the spirit. We want to remember that statement he made because we're going to see some unusual statements in chapter 21. Verse 1, chapter 21, it came to pass that after we were gotten from them, that's the elders of the church at Ephesus and had launched, we came with a straight course unto Koos and the day following unto Rhodes. Rhodes in ancient times was well known for the lighthouse at Rhodes. It was one of the seven wonders uh, of the ancient world. From thence unto Patera and finding a ship sailing over unto Felicia, we went aboard 
and set forth. So Paul has been sort of uh, hopping from port to port on, on probably smaller vessels. He's now found an ocean-going vessel that is going to take them uh, from the islands up in this region here. And uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to allow them, that he's been in Rhodes, Patera is right here, and now they're going to make this long journey all the way back over to here, ocean-wise, saving, you know, going to every little stop along the, the sea line. Uh, notice, if you would, verse 3. Now, when we had discovered Cyprus, we left it on the left hand and sailed into Syria. Stop there for a moment. Luke makes mention of this. We, we, uh, we discovered Cyprus. That word discovered gives us the idea they were close enough to see the island of Cyprus. Um, some years ago, the church sent Trina and I on a cruise, on an Alaskan cruise. And, uh, of course, we're out in the Pacific Ocean in the northwest uh, out there. And uh, there, were, there were several days of the cruise where all we saw was pretty much water. We were going from one place to the other. Uh, at one time, there was a severe storm at sea. Uh, probably 50% of the people on this massive uh, uh, cruise ship uh, were sick, Trina being one of them and so forth. And so when the captain came on and said, if you look off to this side, you can see uh, Vancouver or whatever, a lot of people were real happy that we were in sight of land, especially during a storm. Now, there's no indication that they had run into any foul weather at this point. But Luke thought it important to tell us that they came and they discovered Cyprus. It would have been on their left hand as they continued to sail to the south, uh, the southeast over here. Cyprus was important. Cyprus was one of the first places that Paul and Barnabas started on their first missionary journey, probably 20 years in the past. Um, Cyprus, they had crossed the entire island preaching the gospel. Uh, here in this place called Paphos, they'd run into a, a wicked man named Elymas. He was called a sorcerer. God struck this man blind for a period of time because of his opposition to the gospel. So Paul is probably looking off there. He sees the island, probably reminiscing a little bit. But Cyprus was also very important. It would have had a place in Paul's heart because Cyprus is where Paul's first companion in the ministry, Barnabas, was from. That's where he lived. Um, Barnabas had a nephew that went on that first missionary journey uh, with Paul. What was the nephew's name? Anybody remember? John Mark. Um, John Mark didn't last very long on that journey. They left Cyprus and they came up into this region here and eventually into Pamphylia. And somewhere in here, John Mark quit the ministry. We're not sure why. The Bible doesn't tell us why. We just know that he returned back home. And uh, so Paul and Barnabas were left shorthanded. On the second missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas said, we need to go back and let's visit all the churches we started. Let's see how the brethren are doing. Let's encourage them in the Lord. Barnabas said, that sounds like a good idea. And he determined to take John Mark with him. What was Paul's opinion of that choice? Didn't like it at all. He said he, he departed from us the first time uh, and so forth. Uh, we're not sure of why John left or how John left, 
but we know that it somehow left a, a, a bad taste in Paul's mouth, and um, he just put his foot down and said, there's no way that kid's coming with us again. Barnabas said, yes, he is. Paul said, no, he's not. And the contention was so sharp among them that Barnabas and Paul parted their ways. They were in Antioch when that, that uh, argument took place. And let me see, Antioch is up here. They were in Antioch and uh, Barnabas took his nephew, John Mark, and went back to Cyprus. Paul knew that. And Paul took off and went up in this route and began his second journey. I think it's the book of Job. There's a young man named Elihu who makes a statement. He says, great men are not always wise. Um, the greatest man you'll ever meet, the greatest woman you'll ever meet is still a human being. Human beings are flawed, are they not? They always are. We mentioned this in Sunday school in our discussion, our study of the life of Samson. Samson's one of, to me, one of the most puzzling characters in the book of Judges. And one of the things that puzzles me is the fact that he is a deeply flawed man. We will, in the next few Sundays, see him going into a harlot. Uh, we know he's going to eventually marry a Philistine woman named Delilah um, and, and so forth. And, and yet of Saul, it is said of him more than of any other person in the entire Bible that the spirit of the Lord came upon him. For all of his flaws, he's still found in the Hebrews chapter 11 by name as a man of faith. You and I don't necessarily understand that because, see, our human tendency is when somebody messes up, we feel the need to throw them under the bus. I, I heard a statement the other day, um, I think it was yesterday on the, the radio, it was a, in a political context. It said when the Democrats uh, are going through a, a problem, they circle the wagons. When Republicans are going through it, they circle the firing squad and just start shooting at each other, uh, that type of thing. And, and I'm not going into the context of all of that. But again, there seems to be a tendency amongst Christians, and it's nothing new. Paul kind of felt that way about John Mark. Kid messed up, throw him away. Throw him under the bus, and if he tries to get up, we'll run him over. If he tries to get up, we'll run him over again. And we'll just run him over until he just doesn't get up anymore. Aren't you glad that's not God? That's not God. You don't find that. In the word of God, you find the just man falleth how many times? Seven times and riseth yet again. Uh, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Though he fall, he will not be utterly cast down for the Lord upholdeth him in his, in his hand. God's in the business of restoration. Human beings are in the business oftentimes, sadly, of destruction. And Paul caught himself in that. We have to wonder, as Paul sailed by Cyprus, if he wondered, I wonder how Barnabas and John Mark are doing. Um, we don't know that he had heard anything from them at that point in time. They couldn't, like, become Facebook friends. They couldn't tweet each other or whatever that we can do to do, send, you know, today, send an email or whatever. Um, they may have had word come back and forth. We have no idea. The Bible doesn't record it. But here's one thing I do know. There was going to come a day that the Apostle Paul was going to take that young man that he threw away because he messed up. And in his very last letter, he was going to tell Timothy, 
I want you to, Timothy's pastoring all the way up here in Ephesus. It's up here along the coast. I'm, I can't read it too well because of the, the lighting here, but it's up in this region. He wants Timothy to go down here to Cyprus and grab John Mark and take John Mark all the way somewhere over here where Italy is. He said, bring John, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. Be careful, because sometimes that which man throws away is the one that God's going to pick up and say, I'm not done with him yet. Aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad for that? You're glad for that if you're the one that needs a second chance. Maybe not so glad if you're the one that likes to throw people under the bus. So we see Paul and, uh, going by Cyprus, and for some reason, Luke took, took some time to mention that. We left it on the left hand, sailed into Syria, and landed at Tyre. Tyre was an ancient, ancient city. It was one of the capitals of the entire Phoenician Empire. The Phoenicians were the, uh, some of the first sailors in ancient times, uh, and so forth. You will find Tyre mentioned greatly in the prophecies of men like Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel, uh, and so forth. Uh, they landed there, for, the, for there the ship was to unlaid her burden. And finding disciples, that word finding means searching out disciples. There was a church on this island, um, and uh, the, the, the Bible says that Paul landed there. He must have known that there were some believers there, and they went in search of them. Worldwide persecution against believers was still a, a, a decade or two away. Nero had not yet quite ascended uh, and established his, his authority and the persecution he would unleash. But Christians were already having a hard time all the way from Acts chapter number uh, 5, 6, and 7. Um, and it appears that there were believers there and uh, maybe just sort of flying a little bit under the radar, but they found them. The Bible says we tarried there seven days. And please notice this in verse 4. These disciples that they found at Tyre, who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. So they, notice it's capital S on Spirit. So these are people that have a message for the Apostle Paul from the Holy Spirit and all we know of the message is the latter part of verse 4, that he should not go up to Jerusalem. Um, this is a, raises a lot of question marks. Um, should Paul have gone to Jerusalem? Did God want him there? Did, was God trying to warn him away? And uh, you'll find about the, the same number of people on each side of that question. There are some that are saying that, that Paul was being warned over and over and over again not to go, and he disobeyed that, uh, and the consequences we'll read about as we move on in the book of Acts. There are others that say, but wait a minute, Paul was a spirit-filled man. Paul was a man that loved the Lord. Notice what he says in verse 24 of chapter 20. We spent some time there, one of my favorite uh, verses of this chapter, but none of these things move me, neither count I my, li my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Question, church, do those sound like the words of a man 
who is not right with God? Do they sound like the words of a man who is fighting the will of God? I, I, don't, I don't see that there. Um, and, and so I see a man here who has a, a, a deep commitment, probably deeper than most of us have. If it's raining too hard, we'll go to work, but we can't come to church. If there's snowflakes, we can still get to Walmart, but probably shouldn't go to church, that type of thing. Here's a guy that's saying, everywhere I go, the, the Holy Spirit's telling me that bonds and, and, and imprisonment await me when I get there. He said, but none of that moves me. I want to finish my course. I want to take the ministry Christ has given me and share the gospel of the grace of God everywhere that I go. So we're, we're sort of left in a quandary back in chapter 21, verse 4. These disciples who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. Um, from the moment that Paul got saved, God had called him to a unique ministry. I want to step back up to chapter 9, Acts chapter 9. We studied this somewhere in the early 2000s when we started our study of the book of Acts. Well, it seems like a long time ago. Um, we know that Saul of Tarsus has met with the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. Verse number 10, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. To him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. The Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for, he, for behold, he prayeth. And I've seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand uh, on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. Ananias didn't know what had happened to Saul. He didn't know about that encounter with the Lord on the road to Damascus. Verse 15 is where I want to draw your attention. But the Lord said unto him, this is to Ananias, go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me. Saul of Tarsus had just gotten saved. God already knew his plan. Do you know God has a plan for our lives? Before Jeremiah was born, while he was still in his mother's womb, God told him, um, before I formed thee in the womb, I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. God had a plan. He says, he's telling Ananias, I want you to know this man's chosen. He's going to bear my name before the Gentiles, which for a Jewish person to do was a remarkable thing. He would be the prophet to the Gentiles. But not only that, and kings. Uh, Paul would uh, preach to uh, uh, several kings in the region of Palestine. Uh, eventually, he would preach to the king of the Roman Empire, Nero himself. So this guy that, that had done so much damage uh, to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, God had a plan for him, and not only to Gentiles and kings, but to the children of Israel. That's like, uh, you know, oil and vinegar, you know, that, that, that's not going to mix Gentiles but, and, the, and the Jews. But Paul was to do that. But it's verse 16. I have it highlighted in my Bible. God says, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my namesake. Uh, Doug Fisher pastored the Lighthouse Baptist Church in San Diego, California for many years. Often referred back to this verse in what he called 
the ministry of suffering. That there are some individuals that that is what God's called them to. God said to Ananias, he said, you need to go. I've chosen this man. He's going to carry my name to Gentiles, to the children of Israel. He's going to preach the word of God before kings who have tremendous power of influence, but he's also going to suffer many things for my namesake. We can, I think, rightly assume that from the get-go, Ananias probably relayed that conversation to Saul of Tarsus. So from his earliest days as a believer... Saul understood God had chosen him and suffering was going to be a part of his ministry. Um, look again to chapter 20, where we spent a lot of time. We, we read it. I'm only going to read the, the verse 23. Paul's bound in the spirit. He says, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city. It means everywhere Paul was traveling on this final leg of the third journey, Everywhere he went, apparently there were other disciples like these at Tyre that the Holy Spirit was giving them a message for Paul telling him that bonds, he said that bonds and afflictions abide me. They are waiting for me there in Jerusalem. So Paul's had a lot of preparation, you know, about this. But again, he's not dissuaded from that. None of these things move me. Uh, and so forth. So we find in verse 4 of chapter 21 uh, that they tell that to Paul. Now, there's, a, there's some interlude here with some things that take place. But can I get you to come down, if you would please, to verse number 10? We'll, we'll come back to the verses in between. Paul is now in Caesarea. Caesarea is on uh, the coastline over here, right there. Uh, it, it is a man-made harbor that was built by Herod the Great. Uh, the, the city is, uh, the ruins are still there. The aqueduct is still bringing water in. The stadium is still being used. And it was there in Caesarea, verse 10. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. When he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, thus saith the Holy Ghost, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. This man, Agabus, was a prophet. Prophecy was one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it is what uh, we generally classify as a sign gift. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that whether there be prophecies, they shall cease. The day came when the word of God was completed, and so did prophecy, uh, that, that gift of prophecy. This man, we saw him in Acts chapter 11, turn back a little bit. It's a Bible study, and so we're studying the Bible. We're just following all of these threads through the word of God. In verse 27, And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch, and there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit, capital S, that's the Holy Spirit, that there should be a great dearth, that means a famine, uh, a time of, of starvation, the crops would fail. Generally in ancient times when that happened, then pestilence would break out, uh, that there should be a great dearth dearth 
throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. So this man is legitimate, biblical, spirit-filled prophet. In the Old Testament, if a person came forth and declared that uh, you know they were a prophet and they had this prophecy from the Lord, if it did not come to pass, what was he labeled? False prophet. In the Old Testament, what did they do to someone who was a false prophet? Yeah, they stoned them because that person was there to lead people away from the one true God uh, for whatever his reasons. So Agabus is a prophet. He, he prophesied about this dearth that would come and in the days of Claudius Caesar, uh, which was some years down the road, the, that actually did come to pass. So when we're in chapter 21, verse 10, Agabus is a familiar figure. In the region of Judea, uh, and, and uh, what was in the Roman Empire called Palestine, Agabus would have been a, probably a well-respected individual. They all knew about the prophecy, the fulfillment of the prophecy, how God used that uh, for the people at Jerusalem to be provided for so that they, they did not starve to death. He's a well-respected man. He's understood he's a spiritual man. Verse 11 when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle. The girdle we studied in the, uh, the armor of God for the Roman soldier was usually a leather belt that covered the midsection. I brought in one of my weightlifting belts sort of as an example. The average individual, non-soldier, didn't wear something like that, but they often wore the same, it was called a girdle, but it covered the same part of the body, and it was often a very long strip of cloth, um, and uh, sometimes it might be very, very wide, and they would fold it over, but they would wrap that around, and they used that. Buttons really weren't a thing yet. They would use that to hold their clothing together when they were working, when they were traveling or whatsoever. Uh, it was just a common article of clothing. When you went into somebody's house, for example, if, if I was invited to Carson and Michaela's house and it's 25 degrees and snowing and all that, I'd more than likely be wearing some kind of a coat. Um, so they've invited me over for dinner, so I walk in their house. Am I going to keep my coat on, yes or no? The only way I'm going to keep it on is if I've heard that she's not a really great cook and I'm going to make an excuse to get out of there fast, or they didn't pay the bills and there's no heat. But more than likely, the first thing that I'm going to do when I come in the house, Carson's going to say, may I take your coat? So I'll take it off. That would have been the same custom. So wherever they were gathered, Paul would have undone that long strip of cloth. Um, and like we would take a scarf in the wintertime and hang it over the, you know, the peg or whatever, he might take the, the outer garment off and hang it up or drape it over a chair or whatever. That same thing happened. This prophet Agabus comes walking in. Now, Paul himself is an apostle, highly respected preacher. He's been used of God. He's already penned words of divine inspiration. First Corinthians has already been penned at the hand of the Apostle Paul. The book of Romans has already been penned and so forth. But in comes Agabus, who uh, is as highly respected as Paul. We have no idea of his age. A number of years have gone by since Acts chapter 11. 
And Agabus, the first thing that he does is he walks over to where that strip of cloth, it's called the girdle of the Apostle Paul's is. And he sits down somewhere in that room. We don't know if he sat on the floor. Uh, we don't know if he sat on a stool or a bench or whatever. But he took that strip of cloth and in some manner he tied his ankles together with it and then somehow he wrapped it around his wrist so that he would be like a prisoner in those days. They didn't give him a lot of extra room. They would be held very uh, tight like this, as, as tight as it could be, uh, to keep them from escaping and to make their imprisonment as miserable as possible. He's doing this in front of the entire assembled group of people there. It's Paul's girl. Agabus is a prophet. More than likely, Agabus didn't have to speak anything and everybody understood, especially those that had been traveling with Paul. Remember in Acts 20, he said, save in every city, the Holy Ghost witnesseth that bonds and afflictions abide me. So Luke, Timothy, uh, Trophimus, Aristarchus, and some of those others that were his companions in this long journey down to Jerusalem, they had been in every one of those cities where the Holy Spirit witnessed it. Uh, they'd been up in Tyre where the disciples said, uh, you know, don't go to Jerusalem, that type of thing. Um, so when Agabus did that, they knew what it meant. More than likely, others had heard about it and, and they all get the message, but he gives it out so nobody's guessing. Thus saith the Holy Ghost. So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. So four times from the time he got saved until now, Acts 21, verse 11, the Holy Spirit has repeatedly let Paul, originally Saul of Tarsus, let him know that suffering was part of his ministry. For us to say that Paul was somehow obstinate to the will of God and he was rebelling against the will of God doesn't that's not the marks of a spiritual man that's not that's not the attitude of somebody that's yielded to the Lord like Acts 20 24 uh, by his testimony it is so Paul's refusal to take heed uh, is not Paul being a rebel but more it's the Holy Spirit this is what I believe I'm falling on the side that he's not a rebel, he's a spirit-filled man. Uh, it's the Holy Spirit preparing him. That's what Acts chapter 9 was all about. The Holy Spirit letting him know from the get-go that he shall suffer many things for my sake. Many things for my sake. In a month or so, I'm going to have the privilege to fly out to Indiana and I'll spend a couple days at Hiles Anderson College and I'll be uh, teaching in, in a couple classes. I'll be preaching in uh, chapel a couple of days. Wednesday night, I'll speak at First Baptist in Hammond. And I will remember, every time I go there, I remember back the 17-year-old kid walking on campus, uh, scared to death, uh, an introvert, um, and, and all of those things. And, and uh, I'll just kind of look around, and I, I went to class there, and the bowling alley used to be our chapel. And then they built a new chapel and all that. And I'll reminisce about those things. I'll reminisce about the people I went to school with. I'll reminisce about a, a, a young lady 
uh, that used to run up and down the halls, and she always had a great big giant flower in her hair. I have no what kind. I've got pictures of it with the flower, um, and, and you're going to be surprised about this. You could hear her laugh from one end of the hall to the other. Anybody want to guess her name? Yes. I had my first, uh, uh, my first date with her uh, there in the dining hall and so forth. And I think back to those days as 17, 18, 19, 20, 21-year-old young people preparing for the ministry. Um, none of us had any idea what God had in store for us. None of us whatsoever. Some of the people that I, many of the people I went to school with in the 1970s are already in heaven. Some of them never made it out of Bible college for whatever reason, a car accident or health issue took them to heaven. Um, some of them served the Lord blind. Some of them developed cancer, went through multiple operations. Um, some of them went to places where they suffered all types of hardships on the mission field and so forth. You know, when we start out serving the Lord, we don't always know what's ahead of us, do we? Uh, but if you're following in the will of God, it's all good. He knoweth the way that I take. And when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Isn't that, isn't that Bible? You understand, Paul wasn't like I was as a naive 17-year-old young person just trying to figure out the will of God. All I knew is God had called me to preach, and that's where I was supposed to go to school. That is all I knew. I had no idea what was going to transpire in the next 45 years or so. Probably if I did, I might have second-guessed the will of God or, you know, something like that. Um, but uh, Paul knew from the, the get-go. He knew from the get-go. So in, in 21.4, when those disciples are telling him that, on their part, they don't want him to go. By the way, remember, we're only getting part of the conversation. We're only getting part of the conversation. Almost nowhere in the Bible, when you read of a conversation or a prayer or a sermon, are you getting the whole thing? We're getting, you know, we're getting a synopsis, that which the Holy Spirit wants us to know about what was said. So these people, verse 4, they're, they're saying that he should not go up to Jerusalem. Verse 5, when we had accomplished those days they were there for a week for seven days we departed and went our way and I like this and they all brought us on our way the entire church showed up all of them we see following with wives and children hey moms and dads include your children in the work of the ministry take them out soul winning with you bring them to the work days It'll help if you come to the work days. It'll, most of them can't drive. Get your kids as a part of it. Do you realize those children will always remember the fact that they got to meet the Apostle Paul. They got to meet Luke. They got to meet Timothy. Can you imagine what, what a, a mark that could be on their lives? Growing up in a preacher's home, my kids had the opportunity. They met every missionary that, that came through. Uh, and every missionary that came through, uh, we got to take them out to eat. My kids loved when missionaries came because we went out to eat. Um, 
uh, especially in Pennsylvania, when we, we didn't have two nickels to rub together, uh, we could go out to eat with the missionaries. But my kids sat across the table with some, some of the greatest preachers, Ron Garris, who founded Rock of Ages Prison Ministry. Did anybody here ever get to meet him? He's in heaven, an incredible man. He's from Tennessee, had that slow Tennessee drawl, very deep voice. One of the most godly men that I've ever met in my entire life. My children sat across the table and had conversations. Ron Garris didn't just talk to me. He was talking to Tim, to Sarah and Anna. Uh, he, he was, you know, uh, they, they folded up the piece of paper into the little triangle, you know, and, and he's sitting there like this playing football at the restaurant table with my kids, you know, and all of those things. And when the day was done and we dropped him off back at, ho at his hotel, my kids, all of them thought, Dr. Ron Gears is the coolest person they ever met. And they, they were forming an opinion about godly people. The whole church showed up. Now, we don't know how big the church was. By the way, that doesn't matter. A church's greatness and goodness and, and wholesomeness is not determined by the attendance. Of course, we want to reach people, disciple them. We want to see the church grow numerically, but... Uh, numerical numbers don't tell us whether a church is spiritual or not. If that's the case, Joel Osteen is the most spiritual pastor in America. And he's a heretic. He believes that there's many ways to heaven. He teaches that. Um, that's not Bible. Um, so we see this church and they've got a burden. The, the, the Holy Spirit has let them know that Paul's walking into danger. He's walking into trouble. So their wives, their children, the Bible says till we were out of the city, they're probably headed to the docks or to wherever they're going to catch a smaller boat to row out to the ship. The Bible says we kneeled down on the shore and prayed. Have you ever wished that you could go back in time and be a part of some of these Bible events? I want to see the parting of the Red Sea. Okay, I want to see Goliath go down. Um, I want to see Nebuchadnezzar's faith, uh, face as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't get burnt and come walking out, but he gets to see Jesus in the midst. I want to see that. But I want to see some of these quieter moments like this where these dedicated early believers, can you just see them, husbands and wives and children, all kneeling down, and there's the Apostle Paul, there's his companions. They're kneeling down in the sand, and there's the ship out there that's going to take them away, and they'll never see him again, and they have a prayer meeting. Doesn't tell us what the prayer was. Doesn't record any of the words, just that they prayed. When we had taken our leave one of another, we took ship, and they returned home again. I'm sure they did their best to encourage, to take care of the preacher for seven days. They offered ancient uh, Middle Eastern hospitality, uh, fed them, uh, uh, housed them, and so forth. And uh, they get on the ship, and the Bible says, when we had finished our course from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus and saluted the brethren, found another church there, and abode with them one day. And the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came uh, uh, unto Caesarea. Now, we don't know if they're going on land now or if, see, Caesarea had a man-made harbor there, so they might have come by ship. Uh, but they're now in this, this region of Caesarea, and for the first time in years, uh, Paul is back in, if you will, the Holy Land. 
Jerusalem is to the south of them, uh, probably about a day's journey in, in that time. Uh, so Paul is there in the city of Caesarea. He's going to meet somebody there in verse number 8. Um, and we're going to actually stop there uh, tonight uh, because we're going we're to talk about a man named Philip the Evangelist. He is the only person in the Bible that carries that title. The, the word evangelist is used elsewhere, but he's the only one that's called that. Um, and we're going to meet his four incredible daughters who have an unusual occupation that makes us go, hmm, what's that all about? So we don't want to start this tonight and then try to speed through it and so forth. Um, as we consider the Apostle Paul, we consider what he's going into. He's going in wise, eyes wide open. He's known from the day he got saved, or shortly thereafter, within days after he got saved, that was going to be part of his ministry. He doesn't know how it's going to transpire. He doesn't know what's going to unfold yet, um, but he is dedicated. We're going to close at verse 13 after Agabus has made the prophecy. Actually, we'll start at verse 12. When we heard these things, both we and they of that place, that's the people of Caesarea, besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. All of his friends, all of these people there, that would include Philip, they're begging him not to go. Then Paul answered, what mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. His dedication and commitment to the calling of God, second to none. Second to none. What's our commitment look like compared to that? I understand that they that measure themselves among themselves, compare themselves by themselves, are not wise. We understand that. We were also told to mark people like the Apostle Paul and follow their example. That's why God put them there. They're, they're placed here as an example. This is what a person wholly committed to God looks like. So, by the way, you don't have the luxury of knowing anybody else's commitment because you can't see their heart. You don't know where they're at with God. You don't know what's going on. This is for me to look at Tom Bish and say, so if that were me, would, have I, would I have gone forward or would I have said, enough, Lord, I didn't sign up for that. Didn't sign up for that. I was talking to Mrs. Gerber, and who else was there? What's that? Ken. Yeah, Ken Lacombe. We were over here talking, I think. Uh, there's a gentleman that I follow on Facebook. I hope to meet him. He lives in Maine now. His name is Travis Mills. Travis Mills uh, was in a vehicle that ran over an IED in Iraq a number of years ago in the early days of the war. By the time everything was said and done, he lost both arms and he, he lost both legs above the knee. He was life flighted as soon as they could get him stable there in Iraq. He was sent to Ramstein, Germany, big uh, uh, Air Force base there and a huge hospital there. And a lot of the wounded uh, soldiers from uh, Iraq, Afghanistan and so forth ended up there. Um, and it was often life-saving measures and so forth just... The idea was get him stabilized and try to get him across the ocean to the States. 
He's already lost all of his limbs. Uh, his life hung by a thread. And he was in a conversation with his wife, who was stateside. Uh, they had a, a very young little girl. I think she was about two to three years of age, tops. She was, Miss, uh, Mrs. Mills was trying to get flights. The army was arranging it to get her over to Ramstein to be at her husband's side. And from the, his hospital bed, somebody holding a phone up to him because he can't do that anymore. This was his message to his wife. I want you to call a lawyer. I want you to get our bank accounts, insurance policies, the house, everything transferred out of my name and solely into your name. And then I want you to file for divorce because you don't deserve this. He loved his wife. He, he was not taking his marriage vows lightly at all. He was in a position that none of us even remotely understand. From the other end of that phone conversation in the States, his wife listened to him and he was, he was crying. Um, I don't think I would have wanted to hear that conversation. She listened to him. And the very first words out of her mouth is, that's not how this works. That's not how this works. Till death do us part. And she flew over. He and his wife established what is called the Travis Mills Foundation. Um, and uh, what they do, they have a large, uh, I've seen pictures of it. I think it's in a state. I, it, I don't know what it is. Uh, and it, they recently relocated to the state of Maine. And what they do is they bring soldiers in who have lost limbs in the war. They bring their spouse in and they stay with them for two, two weeks, sometimes a month or more. And he deals with the one who's lost their limbs and she deals with the wife who's got to be the caretaker for all of this. Helping them learn how to maneuver in the new life that they have helping to get their mind out of the bad places we go. His tragedy has turned into a whole bunch of other people's success story. Um, it, it's incredible. Um, I, I don't know if they're believers or not. There's times when I listen to them, I think they might be. Other times, I'm not sure. My point is this. We don't always understand what we're signing up for, but when we come to that place where there's going to be a cost, and there will be, every disciple of Christ carries a cross. If you don't, you cannot be his disciples. That's what Jesus said. Would we have the commitment that Paul had? The Holy Spirit's warned me. I know what's coming. I don't know how it's going to happen. Bonds and afflictions, and now he knows imprisonment abide me but I'm going forward because I'm going to follow Christ. Travis Mills' wife. I think they're both heroes. He's an American hero, and men like that need to be saluted and honored with everything we got. But I think she's a hero because I think she teaches all the rest of us, this is what commitment looks like. Amen? With that, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed.